Support for The Real Pink Podcast comes from Amgen Oncology. Amgen Oncology strives to serve patients by transforming the promise of science and biotechnology into therapies that have the power to restore health or save lives. Amgen is developing innovative medicines like biosimilars for difficult to treat cancers and is proud of their first in-class therapeutic approach aimed to dramatically improve outcomes. Learn more at amgen.com. From Susan G. Komen, this is Real Pink, a podcast exploring real stories, struggles, and triumphs related to breast cancer. We're taking the conversation from the doctor's office to your living room. Athena Jones is a national correspondent for CNN and has reported extensively on race relations and racial disparities in her nine years at the network. Some of her recent work has focused on the disproportionate impact COVID-19 has had on black communities, something we also see in breast cancer as black women are 40% more likely to die from the disease than white women. Athena herself is a two-time breast cancer survivor and currently researching the drivers and solutions for more equitable breast cancer outcomes across the country. Athena, it is a pleasure to have you on today's show. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Adam. Glad to be here. Oh, so good to talk to you. I feel like you're going to have some amazing insight, but let's get started with your background. You went through two breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. Tell us what your care was like. Tell us what that was like. Well, first of all, both of my diagnoses came as a huge shock to me because this is not something that had run in my family. I was very young, under 40, both times. Wow. Yeah. I mean, 36 and 39. It just wasn't at all on my radar. But when it happened, uh, I I got to work and I I had excellent care in my view. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time and uh, during both of my diagnoses. And so I had support from friends, uh, family. I had journalists who were connecting me with people uh, to talk about what to expect. Uh, I had one friend or another come with me to speak with the doctors at a couple of different hospitals I was considering being treated at to help me make that decision. Do I want to be at a big hospital? Do I want to be a smaller, kind of more uh, family field hospital? Uh, a couple of them took notes for me during some of those meetings so that I could focus on what the doctor is saying because you hear this so much that you know, you're getting all this information and are you really digesting it? And now the first bout, which was in 2012, uh, late 2012, was it involved a double mastectomy. I had a ductal carcinoma in situ, but it wasn't invasive. It was in one breast. So we decided to take an aggressive approach since I was only 36, did a double mastectomy and really nothing else. We didn't do radiation or chemotherapy. My cancer didn't indicate the need for that. And I thought, oh, I'm done, you know, have the surgery, recover a few months later, have reconstruction. And that was that. The second diagnosis was much more involved because I had to have surgery to remove the cancer, but then I also had to have six rounds of of chemo, seven weeks of radiation. I should mention the chemo actually with Herceptin, one of the treatments lasted a full year, but the sort of toxic part of the chemo was six rounds. Uh, Later, I had seven weeks of radiation. And I'll tell you, the anti-nausea medicine helped me a lot. I I didn't have any issues with getting nauseous enough. Uh, to throw up, thankfully. Now, the radiation did cause uh, some uh, lymphedema symptoms with the swelling of the arm and my left arm where the the lymph nodes had been removed. And that was pretty depressing to me at the time because, you know, you try to keep things in proper perspective. You're thankful to be alive. And yet, while you're alive, you still feel like, you know, I, I have to deal with, I've had to deal with so much and now I have to deal with this 
extra thing. Uh, but again, there, the hospital really helped me deal with that and get these sort of compression sleeves and, and, and that issue has more or less resolved itself. So I consider myself incredibly fortunate to have had a good, a good experience in treatment. And so, you know, through your experience and in your research about breast cancer disparities, what has surprised you the most? Well, and this is kind of crazy to admit, but I think what has surprised me the most is that the disparities are so significant. Uh, it is something that perhaps should have been obvious to me as a Black woman who's grown up in America, whose parents lived under segregation, that kind of the socioeconomic and racial issues, they play a role across the board in everything. So I shouldn't have been surprised to see these, these unequal outcomes when it comes to breast cancer, but it's not something I've been focused on, uh, even after my own experience. I wasn't focused on it until a friend of mine who was a documentary filmmaker approached me about getting involved in a project on raising awareness about early detection, using the story of my two bouts with breast cancer as a jumping off point, since I only found my cancer at 36 because my doctor happened to believe in doing an early screening, just one baseline mammogram at 35 or 36. Thank God for me that I did that. Yeah. And so my first thought then was, you know, I'm a journalist who covers the news. Do I really want to be part of the story? And so I wanted to look beyond me to figure out how can we address this in a, in a broader way. And that is when I discovered that data point that we hear so much about that you just mentioned. Black women, uh, on average, 40% more likely to die uh, breast cancer than white women. And we also know that the disparities are much worse in some places. So I was surprised initially just at the, at the fact of it, at the number. Another thing that has surprised me as I've done more research is that in many places, the gap in survival rates is getting bigger, not smaller, despite all these advances and more people having access to healthcare. So that's a real concern. It shows that more work is necessary. And of course, this is important because as, as the listeners of, the, of this podcast will know, breast cancer is incredibly common in America. About one in eight women will be diagnosed during their lifetimes. And so we're talking about a lot of lives uh, potentially affected or cut short by these disparities, a lot of potential excess deaths among Black women in the coming years if these issues are not addressed. That's right. So what have you seen in communities across the country that you think might be contributing to some of these disparities? This is the question that really gets to the heart of the matter. And we know that there are, of course, a lot of overlapping factors here. Yes, I think some of it, when it comes to awareness, some of it may be attributed to a lack of awareness, not enough discussion about health issues like this uh, in the Black community. There's often a certain stigma that people attach to a cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. There's a sense that, you know, talking about it is like airing your family's dirty laundry. Mm -hmm. And so if people don't talk about these things, people don't get screened, the disease can't be caught early, that's a problem. And so that has to change. It's why we're doing this. It's why I'm doing uh, my documentary project. But there, there are many other factors. There's socioeconomics, there's genetics, and it's also impossible to disconnect these disparities from uh, what I just mentioned, the, the issue of, of America's legacy of racial discrimination. Uh, when it comes to socioeconomic factors, we know that in part due to that legacy, uh, Blacks have higher poverty rates than whites. We know that uh, Blacks are more likely to be uninsured or underinsured, more likely to live in more polluted environments, and may have less access to healthy foods. Uh, you know, we talk about urban food deserts, and that's something I can relate to. I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I went to church downtown in, in a part of downtown where it was rare to see a grocery store. You saw mm. more liquor stores than grocery stores. Whereas out in the suburbs where I lived, there were at least four, four, four supermarkets or grocery stores within a three-mile radius. So it's about people's overall health, but it's also about access to health care, access to high-quality care. 
because where and how you're treated, of course, can make a difference. The technicians at hospitals or clinics, making sure they have updated equipment, proper training, continuing a training. We also know there's often a longer period between when Black women get an abnormal mammogram, say, and when that issue is resolved through a biopsy or, or what have you. And we know that these treatment delays can make a real difference in survival rates. And, and there are even really basic issues that, that a lot of women struggle with, Black women and other women too, that make treatment harder. For instance, you know, struggles finding transportation to get across town for your appointment or your, or your chemo session. Not being able to afford to take off work or not being allowed to take off work. Um, having to care for, for family members, uh, those types of issues. And, you know, another thing that we hear a lot of talk about when you examine this closely is that it's really important for Black women to get the proper standard of care, the proper dosage and medicines and treatment options that are part of the standard treatment. We, research suggests that Black women are less likely to receive the recommended standard of care. And some of this may be connected to this idea of implicit bias we've begun to hear more about in recent years. There's been a good amount of research showing that doctors often unconsciously uh, treat patients who are Black or another minority or perhaps people who may not speak English as their first language, but they're treated differently uh, than white patients. These doctors may communicate differently, spend less time in the consultation. And when it comes to discussing treatment, they may not offer the same treatment options, like for instance, with adjuvant therapy to ward off cancer after treatments, what's something that I'm, I'm now taking. Of course, the cost of these therapies can make a difference too, and, and that's also an issue. Uh, but we know that Black women with a family history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer are less likely to be referred for gen genetic counseling uh, than white women are. So uh, this is an issue across the healthcare system. I mean, just this week, the American Heart, Heart Association uh, pointed out or, or said that structural racism is driving disparities that are killing not just Blacks, but Hispanics, American Indian, Alaska Native, and other minorities at greater rates than, than whites. And, mm -hmm. and we know, uh, they said, Black and Hispanic patients are much less likely to make it out of the hospital alive than white patients, even when controlling for socioeconomic status. So there's a lot going on here. And of course, last thing, there's a matter of, of genetics. We know that Black women are twice as likely to be diagnosed with the more aggressive and harder to treat triple negative breast cancer, uh, for which the targeted therapies like Herceptin, the one I took uh, as part of my treatment, targeted therapies have yet to be developed uh, for uh, TNBC. So mm -hmm. more research and more focus on this is needed. And that means making sure more uh, Black patients have access to clinical studies and trials and are encouraged to be a part of them. And I said that was the last thing, but the other last thing, because I mentioned the age situation, we need to look at screening guidelines. Uh, we know that Black women are more likely to be diagnosed with cancer at a younger age and with cancer that is at a more advanced stage. Both of my diagnoses, as I mentioned, came before I turned 30. I was 36 and the second time 39. And 40 is when the guidelines suggest some screening begin. So do those guidelines need to be adjusted to take into consideration racial differences? So that was the long answer, but it's because it's a, a multi-layered issue, as you know. No, it's a, it's a huge issue. In addition to all of that, COVID has brought to the forefront that, that Black men and women are disproportionately impacted by health issues. And, and it's, it's becoming more and more reported. And a lot of people probably didn't realize that before now. I know you've reported extensively on this and, and brought a lot of media attention. Do you think that the media can play a role in moving us beyond awareness into solutions? I think so. I think the media can and should play a role. Yes, the awareness is a big part of it. It's a big part of the power of the media, just raising the issue and helping to spur a discussion about solutions. 
I don't think it's necessarily our role to, to have the answers. We're not the experts. The way I see it is our job is to ask the questions and to keep asking them, to find the right people to talk to, the ones who are doing the community outreach and the screenings, and the ones who are treating, the ones who are doing the research, talking, talking to people who can talk about what they're seeing is working and what isn't. And mm-hmm. I think we in the media amplify those successful strategies and, and should. But again, much of our world, the way I see it is to highlight the issue. And that's one reason I, I try to do what I'm doing by being more vocal. And it's something that I tried to highlight, as you mentioned, in my COVID coverage, uh, because, you know, you got to be frank that the, the COVID disparities, just like the, the, the death of George Floyd in May, these, these have really opened people's eyes about these systemic structural issues with race and socioeconomics. And so we have to continue in the media to highlight the issue and to ask and to ask and to ask again, what is necessary, what is working and what isn't working. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I totally agree. And, I, and thank you for the work that you're doing there. I, I, I genuinely appreciate it. I know at Komen, uh, Komen appreciates it as well. So have you heard any local or national ideas that you think could solve or, or just even begin to solve the disparities issue at large? Absolutely. I mean, this is something that certainly Komen is involved in and all kinds of organizations uh, across the country. And as part of my documentary project, we'll be profiling organizations and advocates who are working at the community level to to support Black breast cancer patients, to bring screenings to communities because we know how important early detection is. Uh, We also know that there are programs that help breast cancer patients navigate the healthcare system, which can be incredibly intimidating and complicated. And we know that you know, these, these patient navigators who help ensure cancer patients get diagnosed in a timely manner and get the proper follow-up care, they make it to their appointments, that kind of work we know uh, saves lives. So that's an example. More broadly, I think more research and discussion of this is going to be necessary to find more solutions, especially going beyond the community level. Uh, something that I found in talking to doctors is that, you know, some frustration that there's a lot of focus on the, what the individual should be doing. Like you make sure you get your screening, but there are bigger issues here. Another challenge is what I mentioned before. How do you fight the implicit bias or unconscious racism among healthcare providers? Mm-hmm. There's a good bit of social science research on this, but you also see a lot of resistance, not just among doctors, but among the broader community to confronting this issue of systemic racism. And the COVID stuff and the George Floyd stuff has helped a bit, but it can still be a fraught conversation in America because people don't always want to to confront it, uh, even if they've begun to, they they haven't really uh, gone that step further. So Mm. bottom line here is this is is complicated. It's a multi-layered issue. It needs to be addressed in multiple ways at the community level and at the systemic level. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So let's talk about how our listeners can begin to address it. What can people do to be change agents in their communities so that these disparate health outcomes are not continuously happening? I think this is a, t- a tough question because I-, I think that, you know, it can feel difficult as an individual, as mm-hmm. just one person, yeah. to feel like you can make a difference on some- an issue that's so big. And that's, that's understandable. I certainly feel that way. And I, I think it's not surprising that others would. But I do think that individuals, even ones who don't have a personal experience with cancer themselves, or maybe don't even know anyone who's gone through this, you can still do your part to help raise awareness about the need to stay on top of screenings, even just among your own friends and family. Yeah. You know, asking folks, have you, do, do you get a mammogram yearly? Or when's the last time you had a mammogram? That sort of thing. Something as simple as that. I found in my own social media activity a, a little bit, especially during you know, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, people are eager to hear it. And people say, I made my appointment because I saw your post. 
So oh, that may seem small, but it's something that people can do. I also think staying informed about these issues, being willing to volunteer with an organization, if, if you're interested in being even more hands-on, whatever way that you could. Of course, with COVID, it makes things difficult, but you never know. And because this is an issue that will require community and systemic level change, I think that one thing that individuals can, can do or, or keep an eye on is you know, raise their voices about these disparities, be an advocate, be an ally, you know, join the walks to raise awareness, donate to the cause, and also show leaders and decision makers that this, this matters to you and that this is something that needs attention. That's right. And I think I would also suggest just having conversations about this is so important. And that's why I'm so thankful that you came on this show to have a conversation with me. So Athena, thank you again so much for your time. It's such a blessing and honor to talk to you. Thanks so much, Adam. I'm so glad I was able to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Real Pink, a weekly podcast by Susan G. Komen. For more episodes, visit realpink.komen.org. And for more on breast cancer, visit komen.org. Make sure to check out at Susan G. Komen on social media. I'm your host, Adam. You can find me on Twitter at AJ Walker or on my blog, adamjwalker.com. Thanks to Amgen Oncology for supporting the Real Pink Podcast. Amgen Oncology biosimilars are backed by four decades of experience in the research, development, manufacturing, and supply of originator biologics. Join the conversation at the Amgen Biotech Facebook page or amgen.com.